who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, to bring many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you for this wonderful text of Scripture because it shows us the glory of our suffering Savior. I pray, Father, that you would take it and burn it into our hearts and cause us to realize how gloriously saved we are who know the Lord. And, Father, for any unbeliever in our midst or who is listening to this message today, I pray that you would give them a vision of the glory of this suffering Savior and that they would desire Him and all that you have provided through Him. Father, that this morning they would cry out and plead that you would be merciful to them through the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may they be gloriously saved as a result, Father, we pray, by the authority of Jesus' name. Amen. So what are we to make of a suffering Savior? What are we to make of a suffering Savior? Is that a problem for you? That we serve a Savior who is best known for his suffering? This was a problem for the Jews. And it still is to this very day. Because the nation of Israel had always looked forward to not a suffering Messiah, but a victorious Messiah, someone who would come and smash Rome, who would sit on the throne of David and rule over the nations with a rod of iron. The scepter that man had lost in the garden was to be regained by the Christ of God. That was the promise. Clearly, Isaiah had prophesied that a child would be born, that a son would be given, and the government of the world would rest on his shoulders, and his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and of his peace, there would be no end. The zeal of the Lord would accomplish this. Isaiah chapter 9. And this is clearly what the, nations, the nation of Israel was waiting for. 
And when Jesus arrived on the scene and proclaimed in the synagogue that all these prophecies were being fulfilled in him, those who believed him expected him to set up his throne and overthrow Rome. I mean, what else would you expect? Here he is. We've been waiting for him to come for millennia. This, is, this was certainly their expectation on Palm Sunday, remember, when he mounted a donkey and rode into Jerusalem as a king, and all the people shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know what the word Hosanna means? It means, Lord, save us. Save us. They were recognizing him as king, the promised Messiah. Save us. That's why when he didn't save, they killed him. They had seen all his miracles. They had heard him teach. He had clearly identified himself as the promised son of God, son of man. And so we should not chide these people for believing he had come to sit on David's throne. It made perfect sense. In fact, so ingrained was this expectation that even when Jesus made it plain to his disciples that he was going to have to suffer and die, they couldn't even hear him. They had no idea what he was talking about. It didn't make any sense. They were operating from a completely different paradigm than the one he was working from. What do you mean, a suffering Messiah? Who ever heard of such a thing? Peter even rebuked him for saying such a thing. Over and over again, the disciples would ask, Is it now that you intend to set up your kingdom, Lord? Is it now time for you to set up your kingdom? Even the mother of James and John came to Jesus and said with her two boys, Permit, Lord, that when you come into your kingdom, my boys will sit on your left and on your right. Everybody thought he was going to set up a kingdom. They tried to make him king by force, and Jesus slipped away from them. They had no concept of a suffering Messiah. It wasn't even on the radar. Even though Isaiah had clearly described him as the one who bore our griefs and who would carry our sorrows, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the chastening that brought our well-being would fall upon him, and by his scourging, his stripes, we would be healed. But these were all foreign concepts to Israel. They couldn't fit that text into their paradigm of the Messiah. That's why even today, the Orthodox Jewish community will not read Isaiah 53. They just don't know what to do with it. These are foreign concepts. They just didn't seem to fit. The Messiah was supposed to be great. The Messiah was supposed to be glorious. The Messiah was supposed to be a conquering superhero. And so the apostles didn't know what to make of him. Where's the glory in a suffering Savior? We thought we were getting in on glory. This is no doubt one of the primary criticisms being levied against this little church to whom the author of Hebrews is writing. They were being mocked in part for believing in a suffering Savior. They were being mocked for having a suffering Savior. Messiah. And so the apostles determined to set the record straight. Now, you remember last time 
We saw the apostle reminding his readers that God's original plan for man was glorious, right? Adam had been appointed ruler of the earth to the extent that all things, the author of Hebrews says, were subject to him so that there was nothing that was not subject to him. But sin ruined all of that. Sin ruined all of that. So Hebrews 2, 7 says, but now we do not yet see all things subject to him. The implication is that someday we will. Someday man will be restored to his former sinless glory and reign. But right now, his life and his world are plagued by sin. So that Paul says, even all the creation groans, waiting for the day when the sons of God, that's us, will be revealed in glory. On the other hand, verse 9, we do see him who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus. This is the first place in the book of Hebrews where his name is used. But we do see him who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of his sufferings and death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I want you to note with me in this last Nine verses, the theme, the first chapter, the theme was Christ's glory over the angels. In these final verses of chapter 2, however, the theme is Christ's sufferings. Notice the repetition, first of all, in verse 9, suffering of death. Verse 10, through suffering. Verse 14, through death. Verse 18, he suffered. You see the pattern? Whenever you're studying the Word of God, look for repetition. Look for concepts that are repeated again and again and again. And you'll begin to understand what the theme of that passage was. I really struggled with this. I sat out at La Madeline's this week trying to get a couple hours of peace where I could study this text because I was confused by it. There seems to be so many different things going on here. It didn't make any sense until I picked up on this repetition. This is all about the suffering Messiah. The suffering Savior. And the question is, are you looking for a glorious Savior, a crowned Messiah? Then know this, it was God's plan that the Messiah's glory would be manifest, not apart from suffering, but through suffering. You'll say, well, how can that be? Let me give you five reasons. Five reasons why we must have a suffering Savior. Number one, if you're taking notes, suffering made him a perfect Savior. Suffering made him a perfect Savior. You may say, well, wait a minute. Hasn't he always been perfect? Let's read the text. We're going to start with verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Through sufferings. Now notice the first phrase with me. For it was fitting for him. Now the first question is, who is the him? If you miss this, you may miss a lot. Who was the him? Well, in this case, it's not Jesus Christ, but rather God the Father. Now I know that that phrase is used uh, for Jesus on other, in other texts, but not here. Here he's referring to God the Father. It was the Father who was at work here to accomplish some goal. He is the one described by the words, 
for whom are all things and through whom are all things. This is the Father. Now we understand that the agent through which he accomplished the creation of all things was Christ. But the context here is the Father. And what is the goal the Father has set out to achieve? Well, look at verse 10 again. His goal is to bring what? Many sons, say it, to glory. His goal, the Father's goal, is to bring many sons to glory. In other words, he intends to save many sinners. So far, so good, right? I mean, what Jew would scoff at the idea of God doing something to save them? This is what they've been waiting for. Hosanna, Hosanna, Lord, save us. But here's where God's plan takes an unexpected twist. How did he intend to bring many sons to glory? Answer, through their Savior's suffering. Someone will say, now wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. It doesn't seem to fit. A Savior who saves by suffering? Well, you're right. On the one hand, it does seem illogical. From man's perspective, it doesn't fit, right? But look at the very first words verse 10, for it was fitting for him, the Father. It was fitting for the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, to bring many sons to glory by perfecting the author of salvation through sufferings. It made perfect sense to God because it was consistent with his character. It was consistent with who God is. You see, in order for the Son of God to save sinners, two things had to happen. Two things had to happen. First of all, he had to become a real man. He had to become a real man. Had to. He had to become a real man and experience real human life. This couldn't just happen on a... On a single day, he couldn't come in for a weekend. He couldn't just descend from heaven on Friday morning and, and, and be thrown up and nailed on the cross on Friday evening and then rise from the dead on Sunday and save sinners. It wasn't enough. Because it's not just death, the death of Jesus that saves us. It is his what, class? His righteousness. His righteousness. There had to be genuine righteousness, genuine human righteousness. Otherwise, his righteousness could not be applied to human beings. It had to be real. It had to be worked out in a real human life. That's why we can't save ourselves. We can never go back and undo the unrighteousness that we've done. The, the water is already poisoned with the arsenic. You say, well, it was only a couple of drops. Doesn't matter. It still kills you. And you can spend the rest of your life adding pure water, pure water, pure water. It'll always have that poison in it. Someone had to come, someone who was divine. Someone had to come and make himself a man and live for 33 years yet without sin. So that that genuine righteousness could be placed on our account. You see, the Son of God had to live perfectly 
He even says so in Matthew. He tells us what the standard is. No one enters the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees. And then in the last verse, verse 46 of chapter 5, Matthew says, Therefore you must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we can't do that. Someone had to do it for us. And so the first thing that had to be done was he had to become a real man. His ability to save had to be established or, here's a different word, his ability to be saved had to be established or perfected. That's the word used here, right? Perfect. It's not that he was somehow imperfect and now had to gain some moral perfection. This is not about uh, a deficiency of moral perfection. This is an issue of Jesus fulfilling all righteousness in the human sense. And the only way he could do that was to live. And so he had to come. He had to be a man. He had to be established or perfected by living a real human life and facing all of the temptations that you and I face yet without sin. Only then would he be counted qualified to bring many sons to glory. Only then would he be able to, according to verse 9, taste death for everyone. He had to become a real man. So Christ's glory was manifest through sufferings because sinless suffering made him a perfect Savior. He had to be made a perfect Savior. He couldn't have been a perfect or a qualified Savior unless his ability to save was proven throughout a real human life where every time he came up against a temptation, he resisted. And was found righteous. And so the first thing was he had to become a human man. And then secondly, he had to die. He had to die. And that's what this whole passage is about. His sufferings, not just his death, but all of the sufferings that led to his death. All of the sufferings of temptation after temptation after temptation. All the things that we faced, he suffered as well yet without sin. And so he had to be a suffering Savior because his sufferings made him a perfect Savior. A perfect Savior. Secondly, suffering showed him not only a perfect Savior, but an intimate Savior. An intimate Savior. Look at verses 11 through 14. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Verse 14, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. This is one of the most amazing truths in all of the Word of God regarding the Son of God. He could have stayed in heaven and let us rot in our sin. That would have been righteous. That would have been holy. He could have left us to suffer the consequences of our own sinful choices. That would have been righteous. That would have been holy. But he didn't. 
You see, he loved us so much that he left all of that behind and came to live with us. Instead of simply snapping his fingers and giving us what we deserve, he left his royal palace and moved into our neighborhood. The Apostle John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He pitched his tent, a tent that was no better than our own, and he lived where we lived. He came into this world. He ate what we ate. He walked where we walked. When the sun got hot, he sweat with us. When the snow fell, he shivered with us. He even dressed like us. When he became a man, he learned what it was to become tired and hungry. He cried real tears. He felt real pain. These are things that he did not experience in heaven. These are things that he could not experience while he was in his heavenly home with the Father. But he came, and he experienced all of these things in the midst of us, with us, in relationship with the likes of Peter and James and John. He even experienced what it meant to exercise trust. It's an amazing concept. And again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. The Lord Jesus never had to do that before. Now he was a man. Now he had to trust his father. It's part of his becoming a perfect savior. He had to experience everything that we experienced. And the amazing thing was it not only made him a perfect Savior, but the process made him an intimate Savior. So when they came to church together, somebody was sitting next to Jesus. Can you imagine? And he delighted for it to be that way. He rejoiced over the privilege of being our brother in these verses, the author of Hebrews is saying that even though the Son of God was a perfect Savior, He was not ashamed to call us family. Everywhere we went, He was. He walked. He ate. He dressed. He got tired. He was tempted. Same as us. When they worshipped, He worshipped. When they gathered in the congregation like us this morning and sang God's praises, he was right there with them singing with all his might to the Lord. And I believe every time this congregation gathers, he gathers with us and sings. Brothers, men, do you sing when we come together? Jesus sings. He sings praises to God. You should not be ashamed to sing your heart out when Charlie is up here leading the singing. Who cares if you can't carry a note? The Holy Spirit smooths it all out before it gets to the Father's ears. Do I hear an amen? amen. Yeah, that was the biggest one I ever heard. <laughs> Verse 14, he ties up his meaning for us when he says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also took part in the same. This little Jewish church was being tempted. Jesus knew what that was like because he became a man just like you and me. In fact, listen to this. 
he knew far better what it was like to be tempted. Do you know why Jesus knew? You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He doesn't know sin like I sin. I mean, he never sinned. That's the point. Think about it. You know why we never really experience, very seldom I should say, not never. I hope you're having victory over your temptations. Do you know why we so seldom experience the weight and the pressure of temptation to the degree that he did? You know why we don't experience that? Because we give in. We give in far too soon. We say, I just give in and it'll be over. I'll confess it will be done. He never gave in. He pounded and pounded and pounded. And he said, no, no, no. I will not give God's glory to another. I will not defile myself. I will not ruin the plan. I will glorify my Father with every thought, with every word, and with every deed. Can you imagine the weight of temptation he felt? We have no idea, beloved. We give in far too often, too soon. He never once, never once gave in to temptation. So do not think that he does not know how you are tempted. He knows far better than you do what it's like to be tempted. And yet, without sin. In every sense of the word, Jesus was an intimate Savior. And He is just as intimate with us today as He was back then if we will only fellowship with Him. When in Revelation 3 He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's not knocking on the heart of some unbeliever out there somewhere. That's not the point of that passage. He's talking to the church And he says, if you would only open the door, I will come in and fellowship with you. But you're keeping me outside. You're so busy with your programs. You're so busy with all the stuff that you want to do that feels religious and looks religious and lifts you up and makes man something. And here I am outside. Will you just let me in? I am your Savior. I want to fellowship with you. He is an intimate Savior. But he had to suffer in order to make that possible. And so Christ's glory was revealed in suffering because suffering made him a perfect Savior, and suffering showed him an intimate Savior. Thirdly, suffering revealed him a victorious Savior. Look at verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had power over death, that is, the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You see, death was not a defeat for the Lord Jesus. It was a glorious victory. Remember last Easter we talked about this? How could death be a victory? I struggled with that. How could his dying be victorious? How could the cross be a victory? It didn't make sense. I understand it had to happen in order for me to be saved. But how was it a victory for Christ? 
I believe Satan did everything in his power to persuade Jesus not to go to that cross. Or at least not to die on it. That's what the temptations in the desert were all about, right? You just bow down to me, I'll give you the kingdom right now. You don't have to go through that. You just jump off the temple, show everybody who you are right now. That'll be glorious. You don't have to go through that cross. You just turn these stones into bread. Everybody will see it. You don't have to go to the cross. You can have glory now. You can have your best life now. (laughs) Satan knew who Jesus was. He knew the plan. He wasn't dumb. He knew what would happen if Jesus carried out his mission. That's why... When the demon spoke to Jesus through the possessed man at Gadara, he said, Have you come to torment us before the time? They know. And they knew. And who do you think was in the garden tempting Jesus to turn back from the Father's plan? Don't do this, Jesus. There's got to be another way. Remember the way I showed you earlier? Remember we were in the wilderness? We can do that still. It's not too late. And who do you think was behind the voices of the people mocking Jesus while he was on the cross? If you are really the Christ, come down from the cross. I think Satan was behind there saying, come down, come down, come down, come down. My only hope is if you come down. You see, Satan was trying to appeal to Jesus' love of self, which he didn't have. He's trying to appeal to a sense of Worth that extended beyond what the Father had called him to do. He was appealing to Jesus to give himself the freedom of self-expression. Make of yourself something now, Jesus. There is no better time. We've got a crowd. We've got an audience. Everybody's mad at you. All you have to do is do what I know and you do. You know you can do. Just come down. Just And you will receive glory. And he knew that the plan would be ruined. And he would be cursed forever. If he died on the cross, Satan knew, without ever going, without ever giving in to a single temptation, his evil rule would be over. And that's exactly what happened. As Jesus was preparing to go to the cross, you remember he said, Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He knew that by his death he would render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And from that moment on, those who feared death, and by the way, that's all of us, would be free from such fear. This is why Paul could write 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? From the moment the Lord Jesus tasted death on our behalf, death for the believer could be viewed as victory and gain. And Satan's ultimate weapon was destroyed. Once death was removed from his hand, it was like taking Satan's ultimate WMD. He found it. Jesus found it. And disarmed him. So that death has no fear for us anymore. Jesus was victorious over the devil on the cross. He did not do what Satan raised hell to get him to do. 
he was victorious. And because he was victorious, we can be victorious. Satan's ultimate weapon was destroyed and we are no longer slaves to fear. The sting of death has been removed. And so Christ's glory is manifest through sufferings because it made him a perfect Savior. It showed him an intimate Savior. It revealed him a victorious Savior. Fourthly, sufferings ordained him a priestly Savior. A priestly Savior. Look at verses 16 and 17. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to... He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In verse 16, mark the words, had to. Had to. Jesus, in in, in the note there on verse 16, if you have a note in your Bible, a center reference column, you probably have a note on verse 17 that says, was obligated. He had to. He had to what? Well, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. This was not an option. The only way he could save us was to become like us. He had to be perfected through a life of constantly facing sin and never giving in. A life of constantly interacting and loving and being gracious and merciful to the likes of you and me for an entire life, 33 years. He had to experience all of that or else he couldn't save. And that's not the only thing he couldn't do. He couldn't be made a high priest either. You see, the work that Jesus has done for us was a priestly work. He was obligated to become a man if he were going to be a priest for us. It was the work of a mediator between God and men. It was the work of offering a sacrifice sufficient to satisfy or to propitiate God's wrath against us. You understand that concept, right? Propitiation, I know it's a big term. We don't go around using it all the time. We don't say to our kids, you know what? You really upset your mother. You better go propitiate that. Now, some of the kids will start using that term now, right? That's okay. Learn it. Use it. You better go propitiate mom's wrath. How are you going to do that? Well, uh, fire chocolate. That always works for me, right? (laughs) Boy, that's not in the notes. I better just stick with it. Um, Jesus knew that the wrath of God was going to be poured out on us. God is angry. Listen, he's not angry at sin, okay? He's angry at sinners. His wrath is not being poured out on sin. It's being poured out on sinners. He was mad. He's angry with people who are sinners. And the only way they could be saved, the only way God could exercise saving mercy is for Jesus to become like us and to suffer with us for a lifetime. He had to be made like us. It was the only way he could serve as a priest. Being a perfect man, standing in the gap between sinful man and holy God. He had to be made a man to propitiate, to satisfy, or to extinguish God's wrath against us. That's what propitiation means. Jesus took his blood 
and he threw it on the fire of God's wrath toward us and put it out. But this priestly service, understand, was not a dispassionate service. It was a merciful service. He made himself both the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice. Because he saw our plight before God and had compassion on us. And his compassion moved him to action. He laid down his life for his friends. Now that's remarkable. That is almost unbelievable. Which is why this world scoffs at it. And yet it's true. This is the glory of a suffering Savior. His suffering ordained him a priestly Savior. And number five, suffering displayed an empowering Savior. Look at verse 18. For since he himself was tempted and that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You want practical application? This is it. What does all this have to do with me? Well, it has to do with your salvation, yes. And I hope that if you don't have that salvation, that today the Lord Jesus is being made more glorious to you than you've ever seen him. I pray that today would be the day of your salvation. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's something else you need to know. Forgiveness of sins is not all we get. This intimate Savior remains an intimate Savior to the degree that He is willing and eager to come to our aid when we are tempted. He says, I know what it's like to be tempted without sin. I can help you do that. I can help you conquer sin. I've been there. I've done that. It takes a miracle of God. And I'm the miracle giver. But you can't do it on your own. You must do it in fellowship with me. You've been struggling with a stubborn habit? Have you gotten yourself enslaved to some sin that will not let you go? I have good news for you. Because Jesus Christ came to earth to suffer just like us, he not only broke the power of Satan over your life for eternity, he now makes himself personally available to assist you with that temptation. We talk all the time about in counseling. We're sitting down across the table from a couple or a person. The most important person in that room is the Holy Spirit. Because only he can help a struggling sinner overcome their sin. All I do is point them to Christ. Point them to his word where they can find life and victory. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it takes to resist and conquer those temptations. The power that he employed to conquer temptation in his own life he now offers to you if you will only take it. That's why he had to suffer. He had a problem with a suffering Savior. It was fitting. 
It was fitting to demonstrate his glory. You want to see the glory, a little bit of the glory of our God and Savior? His sufferings were not only fitting and congruent with the character of Almighty God, they are a greater demonstration of his glory than anything else. You want to see a little bit of the glory of God? You want to see a little bit of his power? Let me talk to you about that for our last minute together. Would you see a little bit of the glory and power of God? Then I say, look at man. Look at man. A marvel of biological complexity that still exceeds our ability to comprehend. More than that, a spiritual being made in the image of God, created as the highest of earthly creatures. How awesome must be the power of the one who created him. You want to see more of God's might than that? Then look to the earth. Look to the earth and consider how awesome is the complexity that enables and enables it to sustain life as it floats in a lifeless and seemingly limitless, dark and cold space. You want to see the glory and power of God a little more? Look at the earth. You want to see the glory and power of God beyond that? Then look at the solar system with its spinning planets, moon and sun, how precisely they turn and interact like an incomprehensible mechanism of planetary wonder. Yet they came into being by a mere word from the Almighty. You want to see more of the glory of God? Then look to the Milky Way. And as you ponder the vastness of this celestial cloud made of trillions upon trillions of stars, let your mind wander 600 trillion miles to the edge and consider that this is only one of the first of some hundred thousand million more neighboring galaxies. And you see the power and glory of God. You want to see even more of God's glory and power? Then consider the invisible heaven the place where angels live and where the very throne of God resides. What fathomless might must have been at work to create such a realm, and yet they burst into being by one creative word. You say, yes, but I want to see the greatest exhibition of God's glory ever in history. Oh, beloved, be careful what you ask for. The greatest exhibition of God's power and glory is not a pleasant thing to see. And it will likely make you sick. And you won't be able to look at it for very long. Because if you want to see God's most awesome demonstration of divine power and glory, there's only one place to look. You must look at the cross. You must look at the cross, do you see? All of creation came into being by a mere word. A word from God's mouth, a creative word. But divine speech was not enough to accomplish our salvation. 
God actually had to become a man, born of a woman, born under the law, into a sinful world where he must stand against every temptation brought against him for 33 years. And then he had to suffer the false accusations, unjust punishment, brutal beatings and tortures as if a thief and a murderer. He had to bear the agony of having nails hammered through his feet and his hands and crown of thorns placed upon his head and a spear in his side. I tell you, the exercise of self-control alone surely required more power from God Almighty than the creation of all that is. That's the glory of God on display. And beyond that, consider that in those dark hours, Jesus bore the wrath of the Father that had been stored up against the guilt of millions upon millions of sinners the eternal hell that was our just and holy condemnation was poured out in full upon the sinless, guiltless Son of God. So I say again, the greatest exhibition of the power and glory of God was the sight of Jesus Christ hanging innocently upon the cross and the proof of it is in his resurrection. God's highest goal in the history of the world is to magnify and set on display the awesome glory of his son, the Lord Jesus. There never has been a greater manifestation of that glory than when he allowed himself to be nailed to the cross for crimes committed by me. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, the idea of a suffering Savior is moronic to those who are perishing. To the Jews, the cross is a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to us who are the called, it is the greatest manifestation of the awesome power of God and wisdom of God. To him alone be the glory. And so I ask you, who is more worthy of glory and honor? A mighty king or a suffering savior? And again, I ask you, do you know him, beloved? Have you humbly laid yourself bare before him, pleading with him to forgive you and apply his terrible sufferings to your account? This is the only way you can be saved. It's the only way you can be saved. I pray you will not miss this grace by which Jesus Christ tasted death so that you might live in peace with God forever.